0: So thanks for being here. Thanks for bearing witness. Thanks for watching online. Good job sticking to your New Year's resolution to be at church every Sunday. I think the Lord will honor that. And I'm uh, just teasing. It's snowy. Jesus never died on the cross or in the snow. Okay. That was a good joke. I like that. Yeah. T.S. Eliot, I think perhaps my favorite poet, uh, and in the four quartets, he says, we had the experience, but missed the meaning. After 16 years and eight months of being your pastor, I have a very rich set of experiences. I love it. I love it. It's a a, a mixed bag of emotions, of course. I'm excited about the new things that God is opening up in my future, but very, very very sad, grieving, really, to, to conclude my time. And I want to make sure that I don't miss the meaning of all of these experiences. So I'm reflecting deeply upon the ups and the downs, the quick times, the low times, the times where we were bursting at the seams, the times where we were all shoveling snow, the times where we're doing things together, and the times where it felt like we were doing things all alone. But I want to make sure that I reflect upon those times to, to increasingly be matured and seasoned by God's Holy Spirit through memory and also through anticipation for the future. Um, I, I don't want you to miss the meaning of our experiences together either. And I think that there have been things that I was trying to do or that I have tried to embody as a pastor and as a leader that largely were implicit. I mean, stuff that I never spoke about publicly that nevertheless was deeply important to me a conviction, a set, a set of convictions, really, that, that drove my decision-making, that drove my, my hermeneutics, my biblical interpretation, and it certainly drove my, my preaching and leadership of the church. And so for my final few Sundays, that's what I want to share with you. In, in case you missed it, here's all the stuff that I was trying to do over the years. And, and it was hard, oh my gosh, it was hard to be a better version of myself than what I naturally and normally would have been. And the first thing I want to share with you today is something I read in a newspaper article in London in about 1999. Carmel and I were overseas teaching in Bible colleges and, and training pastors from uh, mostly fr- from uh, Africa and the Middle East that had come and immigrated to the UK. And, and we were walking around town one day and, and picked up one of those crummy little newspapers that nobody really reads, you know, like the local rag that maybe people use to put their beer on at the pub, you know, that, that kind of newspaper. And in that newspaper was an article that said, here's 10 things the church ought to do to matter to our culture. And I thought it was amazing that a secular newspaper would even acknowledge that the church existed. Like that was not part of how I grew up at all. That was not part of my cultural information set. And so that, I was intrigued. And I remember reading them and only one stuck out to me. And reading it and trying to embody it changed my life. I think you would have had a very different experience with me as your pastor had I not read this article than what you would have gotten instead. And the advice of the columnist was that the church ought to stand for things and not against them. And at first I read that and I thought, well, that's kind of silly. I mean, we're supposed to stand against evil. We're supposed to stand against oppression. We're supposed to speak truth to power. I mean, look at the witness of the Old Testament prophets. Look at the writings of the Apostle Paul. But then I began to reflect upon my own convictions as a Christian and upon my own ministry up till that point as a pastor from the holiness tradition. And I realized almost everything that I was doing was in opposition to something else. Like... We didn't drink, or smoke, or go dancing because those were sinful things. And and we didn't condone uh, homosexual behavior or anybody in the LGBTQ plus community because because those were aberrant sexual deviations. In fact, I couldn't think of anything that we were really offering or what we really stood for. And that troubled me because I thought, well, like, what is the good news? Good news, you don't have to go to hell. If you think like me and walk like me and talk like me and stop doing everything that you're gonna do. And I began to take that, that call seriously, in large part because it reminds me of Paul's words, Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything praiseworthy, anything excellent, and think about these things. Think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, pr- practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, what's Paul saying? Normally, when people think about the apostle Paul, we reflect upon him as quite curmudgeon You know, he's got big, long lists of things you shouldn't do, big, long lists of people who don't cut the mustard. But if ever that's been your experience of Paul, I want you to go back and read more of him. Because when you hear him out, he says, at the end of the day, what really matters is thinking about what's true, noble, commendable, trustworthy, you know, standing for things and not against them. And I get so concerned and always have been concerned having read and reflected upon not only that article but the scriptures in light of that article. And I go, "Man, Christians are, ahead of the curb when it comes to cancel culture. We've been canceling people for roughly two millennia. Oh, you don't believe like me? Oh, you're Baptist, or oh, you're Nazarene, or you're Presbyterian. Do they even count? You're Catholic, we just cancel all kinds of people based on the the thinnest, tiniest little sliver of difference. And at that point in my life, and ever since then, I just made up in my mind, I I don't want to do that. I don't wanna have a cancel church. I don't wanna have a cancel culture. I want to be part of a society of blessing. I wanna be an agent of healing and reconciliation because that's what Christ said he's gonna do through his church. And so I think one of the things that we might consider is, well, who, who our heroes are? Like, yeah, there's lots of people out there that kind of stink. You probably have had some bad church experiences. Somebody probably hurt you, but, but what about the good ones? As you reflect over the last 20 years, over the last 50 years in your life, who who were the people that inspired you to be better, holier, more loving, more gracious, more forgiving? Let's celebrate those people. Let's stand for people like that. And let's stand for healthy relationships. Like who are the romances that you see that inspire you to love your wife all over again, to fall in love with your husband as though it's the first day? Who are the people that demonstrate to you that, that passion that, that healthy and godly eroticism are supposed to be part of what makes a husband and wife work together. We got to stand not just for relationships that, that model and inspire for us what godly love looks like, but what about the healthy relationship between, well, between people of different political persuasions, people of different denominational and faith backgrounds, people of different faiths altogether. What about healthy mentoring relationships? Like maybe not everything is abuse or pederasty or evil and toxic patriarchal leftover. I mean, maybe maybe there's something that you can remember worth celebrating. And, And we've always tried to do that here. I've always tried to do that here. And believe me, I have no shortage of people with whom I'm angry. I'm really good at being frustrated and and, and, and agitated by people who do it wrong. But by and large, you you don't really hear about it. Because this is the second thing I want to say is because anger will never heal you. My anger won't help you and your anger with somebody else isn't going to heal the rift inside of your spirit. Because anger has no power to reconcile. Anger has no power to bring people together. All anger can do is make you sick, make you toxic, make you bitter. Now, a- anger is normal. Like you're gonna get angry. Jesus got angry, so if he's our model and our example, if he's the author and finisher of our faith, then we certainly can't say that anger is ungodly if God himself was angry. But from one gray-haired man to another, let me just tell you, it's, it's not gonna get you real far. Typically what happens is we get angry because we see something wrong, something unjust, and we get really worked up about it. And, and, and you know the, the enemy of your soul is so slick, once you start getting angry about the thing that someone else is doing wrong, you start feeling really, really, really good about your own behaviors, opinions, preferences, and relationships, and you become so blind to the sin which so easily besets us all. That's why we're cautioned in your anger, don't, don't sin. Now, I say all this, by the way, because there's a, there's a huge movement, sort of a, a, a counter movement to Christian spirituality in our culture today um, known as deconstruction. I'm sure many of you heard of it. It's kind of all over the place. But you know, I, I grieve for my friends who are going through the process of deconstructing their evangelical faith. Not because I think they're wrong. In fact, in many ways, I think they're right. Like, do you want a a laundry list of all the things that churches have done wrong? I guarantee you, I can fill out a better list than you. But it just doesn't help you. At the end of the day, you deconstruct and you deconstruct and you deconstruct and you deconstruct and what are you left with? You've now successfully pointed the finger at every, every human being to have ever lived. You've shot all the wounded and stabbed all your friends. And guess what? They were never any more perfect than you and what you got left is well it's it's nothing it's nothing that's why i think standing for things is so hard and people would often get angry with me for any number of things over the last couple decades but but one in particular people will always be really frustrated that i wouldn't take a stronger stance on issues that i wouldn't come out for example against racism that's ridiculous who would ever come out in favor of racism like what a ridiculous stupid thing it always drove me crazy when you'd see somebody get up at a a sensitive cultural moment and you know stamp their foot and wave their hand in the air to to get as many likes and as many votes as they could to, to tell that what that pedophilia is wrong that racism of course it's wrong who in the the right mind would ever advocate for those things what's harder the harder work is to say you know what it's not just that we're against racism what's more important is that we elevate and celebrate difference multiculturalism that we learn from one another, that we hear and value different perspectives that we invite people in. And one of the things that you probably never would have seen are the countless hours that we've put in to work behind the scenes, trying to make sure that it's not just one white guy in his 30s, 40s, soon to be 900s, with a microphone on stage at Westwinds. And instead of being wrong and, and, or talking about how wrong everybody else is and pandering to try and get some cheap little moments of influence in the public discourse we've been we've been advocating for what we believe is right for the full inclusion and authority of women for for the multiplicity of voices from every race and tribe and tongue and nation because we stand for things not against them and again You probably didn't know that. (laughs) As a professional communicator, you think sometime before 16 years and eight months, I would have made that more clear, but um, I guess you weren't reading my life as well as I hoped it could be read. Third thing I want to point out today, there are six in case you're taking notes, and if you're not, well, shame on you. (laughs) But the problem, I think, with standing against things, which we all want to do, and at some point we, we must, There are certain fights that are ours, but the the problem is the things that we oppose ultimately frame all our questions, and they rob us of all our freedoms, and they diminish all our loves like let's say you're really passionate about the fight against human trafficking that is a noble and worthwhile cause we, we have two family charities at west winds we have five family charities, but two in particular that, that are dedicated to combating the evils associated with human trafficking um, the soar house here in jackson and the refuge for women las vegas of course in in nevada we believe passionately in these organizations and they are doing noble and important work i hope that you are praying for them daily because that's that's heroic. But, but if you imagine somebody who's obsessed with ending human trafficking, which is a noble goal, then perhaps you can understand how that issue is so sick and so twisted that it, it becomes all-consuming. And real quick, they can't go out on a date with their husband or spend any time with their friends because in the back of their mind, they're wondering, why am I not doing more? How can I enjoy a healthy romantic relationship while there are people out there whose relationships have been perverted and and turned toward darkness forever? And and real quick, you start to think, ah. That's what I mean. Like We get so focused on what we're standing against that we forget what we're living for. And so it's not enough for us as the people of God to identify perversion or abuse. We must also celebrate and authenticate virtue. Like what are we hoping people will be delivered from? What are we hoping people will be welcomed into? What is the good news? Number four, we have to be very careful, I think, to define our lives by that which we love, instead of that which has wounded us. You know, I, I, I sometimes go back and hear like some of the earlier sermons I preached when I was a, a younger man, when I was a black-haired man. And uh, in fact, we found this old uh, compact disc when I was cleaning out my office here that's, that's got copies of uh, an email devotional that I sent out before there were even blogs. It's crazy, it goes back to like uh, 1998 and 1999. We used to send it out every day in Internet Explorer. Before there was like MailChimp, I we didn't have subscribers who would sit there and go through and, and hand select all the people in my contact list to send them a daily word of encouragement. It was about as effective as what I do now, which is to say, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> But to go back and, and see the evidence in some of those early things that, that there's so much good in there, but but I can I can see so many of my ministry wounds coming through. Like growing up in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, I remember one time I I had this hero who was in Seattle. And I you know, be careful when you get to meet your heroes, right? and he was doing ministry with college students. And I just thought he was the bee's knees man. I mean, everything he said was like honey into my ear. I figured he had a a direct pipeline to the Holy Spirit and I admired him so much. So I went and visited his church one time and at the end they had an altar call and they invited anybody who wanted to minister to college students to come up to the front. At that point, I was a chaplain for one of the big universities in our area, and I wanted so badly to be part of like revival and, and, and just a, a, an amazing move of God. I still do. So I remember coming up to the front, and he, he was excited to pray for me, and he put his hand on my head and punched me in the stomach. Like, you know those horrible things you see on TV about all the hucksterism and the charlatanism? And I was like, uh, First of all, you're going to have to do a lot better than that. Secondly, what is happening right now? And he was so determined to get me to be slain in the spirit, which is an experience sometimes people have where they, they fall over under an overwhelming sense of God's presence, that he was pushing his hand down on my head and, and not moving me at all. <laughs> and he punched me repeatedly in the stomach until I burst out laughing and walked away. Well, I would go back and read some of those old devotionals And there was always a a spirit to them that, you know, we're not going to force people to do things. We're not going to be fraudulent about things because I was still reacting against the fact that I saw my hero as flawed. But don't you know, we're all flawed. When I came to Westwinds, the thing that inspired me most about the opportunities afforded here were were that we were going to present experiences to people. Just like the good experiences that I had as a Pentecostal charismatic, like what we wanted to do at Westwinds was give people fresh, acceptable, new, meaningful ways to experience the good news of God's awesome Holy Spirit power. I thought, this is the best of what I have come from without punching anybody in the stomach. And it took me a long time to minister, not out of my wounds, but out of my loves. My love for the movement of God's Spirit. One of the earliest struggles I had at Westwinds that I really, this was hard, man. I mean, growing up in Western Canada, there aren't no Christians there. Like 3% of the population goes to church in a given year and church is defined as um, synagogue, Hindu temple, um, Muslim congregation, I mean, church of any stripe. So you come to America, a Christian nation, And I imagined that the cultural climate would be quite similar because at home, at least when we lived there a long time ago, all the Christians were friends because we had to huddle together for warmth. And so when I moved to Michigan, I thought all the Christians are friends. That's not true. I didn't know that. And I remember it was early on in my tenure here, um, maybe the first six months or so, there was a group of young men, maybe eight or ten of them out in the lobby that were visiting from a local Bible school. And I was so excited to go and meet them. I thought, this is great. This is the next part of the, the young army that God is raising to bring the good news of the gospel to all of America. And they were there on assignment from their professor to point out any heresy that might be in my teaching. And I was like, are you, are you kidding? First of all, bring it. <laughs> Secondly, like, why, why are we not on the same team? And so for years and years and years and years, we would get little groups of people from one or two local colleges that were coming literally to be the theology police. And and it was so hard to see them out here and watch them taking notes, to to know that they're, they're not listening. They're not listening carefully. They're only listening for something that they can take back to their class. It was so hard not to just grab a microphone and rip into them. And I never did. I never did. But I'm sure that if you go back and listen to some of those teachings in those early days at West Winds, you will hear me struggling to live out my conviction that I will stand for things and not against them. I am on the side of young men and women carefully studying scripture, carefully listening, carefully evaluating historical Christian theology to make sure that the church is safe and secure. I'm on the side of that. And it's really hard to do that when they've decided you're not on the same side. But man, I'm glad. I'm glad I fought that fight. I'm glad I ran that race still as to earn the prize of a clear conscience coming to the end of my tenure and go, I had it in me to rip them to shreds. And I never did. I never did. See, We all have wounds. But those wounds are meant to be healed. They're meant to be healed. And maybe they never fully heal. I mean, maybe you're always going to walk with a little bit of a limp. Um, But you don't have to be defined by it. Let your loves lead you. Because Christ has planted them within your spirit. That they might grow and bear fruit. Number five, the best critique of bad, says Richard Rohr, the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico, a Franciscan priest who's come to some notoriety over the last while. The best critique of the bad is the embodiment of that which is better. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid and my dad was a bishop, which meant that we traveled around and visited other churches all the time. I've been in some bad church services, some bad ones. Ooh, yeah. In my work as a pastor and then in my work as a seminarian training other pastors, I've, I've been inflicted by church services. I've been to some horrendous ones. Um, there's a lot of things that other churches do, not just that I don't like, but that I hate. Like I am allergic, I wanna wanna die. Like I'm rolling my eyes and I I have to sit in the back so I'm in the shadow. And you know, you you don't really hear about those things. Maybe I make tongue in cheek comments every now and then, but you don't hear about them. Instead, when you come to Westwinds, you notice a total absence of those things. Like I hate when I go to a church and somebody gets up on their high horse and starts spouting all their left-wing politics from the pulpit, I hate that. Because I'm not here to be indoctrinated. I'm here to learn about Jesus. I hate when I go there and I hear somebody spouting their right-wing politics. I'm not here for that. I'm here to be deeply rooted in the tradition of people who love and serve Christ. I want to be critiqued by the scripture, not by somebody's short-sighted, impish, and impotent political opinions. So you don't hear politics when you come here. And with today's exception, you don't hear me ranting about the people who hijack the pulpit to do that. I hate when I go to church and it feels like I'm at a town hall meeting of all the stupid crap that everybody has going on in their life. Anybody got a birthday this week? You know, Bob was just making this beautiful quilt this week. Shut up! You can go to churches where there's the, the, the music part, which is boring, and then there's the preaching part, which is boring, but then in the middle, there is a bludgeoning tedium of about 45 minutes of community life that sucks the life right out of you. So we just don't do that. Now, there's sometimes some unintended consequences from the things that we tried to do or did do or didn't do. I mean, it's not like we got it all perfectly figured out. Clearly not. But one thing we've always done, one thing that's always been so important to me is not to talk trash about everybody else, but just to live out of the center of who we are, to lead and present the story of Jesus and his way as holistically, as faithfully, as honorably as we know how. Last but not least, number six, life is practice for eternity. Now Jesus said, we're gonna teach everybody to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, And when I think about standing for things, this thing I'm standing for, is the way God designed life to be. I'm not standing against all the aberrations of that because people are always going to make up new ones. No, I want to have firmly fixed in my mind how God described and designed life to be enjoyed. And if you go through and you read just Jesus' teachings, there's a lot more worth in the scripture than just the red letters of of Jesus' teachings, but if you just go through and read Jesus' teachings, I think a lot of Christians would be really uncomfortable in Jesus' kingdom. Because all his parables, all his stories are about eating and drinking and carrying on and partying. I mean, first miracle he performs, he's clearly been at a wedding reception for eight days. I mean, oh, how many Bible lessons do you think they got in those eight days? Probably a whole lot less than second helpings. And when I look at all that Jesus stood for and all that Jesus proclaimed in the positive, I go, well, that's the side that I wanna be on. This life is practice for eternity. And when you get into the presence of God, there will be nothing to stand against. There will be no sin that you gotta worry about. There will be no enemies that you gotta condemn. There will be no cultural practices at which you have to shake a finger. There's only gonna be the presence of Jesus, the radiant, purifying presence of our Lord. And so if that's where we're going, why not start now? And how will we even recognize what's good and beautiful and true, what's commendable and noble and holy, unless we start training ourselves now to be people who search out that which is true and wholesome and honorable and noble. Why not train ourselves to be people curious about the new, beautiful virtues God is birthing in and around and among us. And I'll tell you, friends, that's what, that's what our world needs. Christians who embody the gospel. Christians who walk in the peace and wisdom of God's Holy Spirit. Christians who are able to acknowledge the world is not yet the way it's meant to be, and neither am I, and neither are you, and neither are they, and yet, I know whom I have believed in. I know what I stand for. I know what I'm working for. And I know all that we're inviting you to enjoy in God's church. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for all the ways in which you have equipped us, trained us and released us to be people who heal the world who bless and enjoy the company of others, who reach out with arms of love and friendship and gather in participating in that ministry of reconciliation. Help us, God, to increasingly have energy to work for and honor, elevate and celebrate all that is good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.